Uh, and welcome, everybody, to uh, the Gerald Field uh, Reports. Uh, I am your host, Anthony Moore. Uh, with me is the other host, uh, Casey Hills. Casey, introduce yourself. It me, Casey Hills. Uh, you did an admirable job, Tony. I don't. I don't really need. I don't have anything to add on to that. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the thing is, like, any introduction I do that isn't fun with fungus is already like a thousand steps up above my normal introduction. This is a show where my best friend and I talk about uh, Hey Arnold, a show that kind of shaped who we are as people today. Um, mm-hmm. You all know the show, you all love the show, uh, and we've got uh, a pretty heavy episode for you. <laughs> a couple of them, honestly, yeah. yeah. Uh, this is uh, episode two, uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, The Pink Book and Lockjaw, uh, both of which Lockjaw. I have a lot to talk about. I don't know, Casey, like, you're the one who usually does introductions. Do we just dive right in? Okay. Is there anything we should talk about? Yeah, man, I wasn't trying to bogart the format. Yeah. No, I mean, like, like I have no idea what the fucking format is yet. <laughs> That's fair. I do want to say that I'm pretty sure, because, like, obviously, uh, hey, hey Arnold is a snooosh production, um, much like the Angry Beavers, I believe, also was. But it kind of feels like a Klasky Shupo sometimes. And the thing that really makes me feel that is that I'm pretty sure Lockjaw is, like, their version of Reptar, <laughs> right? Well, There's a similar big lizard melancholy there. Well, yeah, but the thing about it is, like, like this entire neighborhood is defined by their urban legends. Like, like every yes. single thing that exists within their universe, uh, as the is kids see it. mythologized. Yeah, exactly. Like, so yeah. these kids were fucking four-year-olds when they saw Lockjaw for the first time. I mean, I don't know how yeah. old they actually were. They were young, and, and, right. and like... And it became this monster god in their minds. Exactly, exactly. Which, yeah. like, how pretty much every fucking myth in the world has started, like, like over yeah. time it has built and become something other than it is. Well, we'll get to Lockjaw in a little bit. Uh, let's start with a different kind of mythology, the internal mythology of one Miss Helga G. Pataki. I'm not sure what the G stands for, but I am 100% sure it's G, although if you had asked me before I said it, I probably couldn't have told you. Uh, little Pink Book opens with Helga mooning over Arnold uh, in private instead of, you know, on stage at a school play, <laughs> which I think is probably a good call, just moving that behind the curtain, as it were. Her, her infatuation with Arnold is deepening with every episode, and we are beginning to realize just the extent to which this defines and consumes her character. You really get, like, the sense of her poetic soul uh, more than, yeah. than you did in the first episode with her. Uh, she... Like, before, like, like she had her little internal monologues or whatever, external monologues. Uh, but you never really get the... Soliloquy. S- yeah, you never really get the sense that... Uh, is this how she is all the time? Is this just these brief, fleeting moments uh, that she has right. of inspiration? Before Was she this s- just a goof for the episode? Yeah, it, before yeah. she snaps back into being, you know, mean, angry... Punchy McHugh. It's... Yeah. Uh... uh I, I, I kind of love the dichotomy about her because both of these these things really exist as true for her. Like she is as yeah. much uh, the bully and the angry person as she is this kind of 
uh, tender, vulnerable person. Exactly. Yeah, we mentioned that briefly in the last episode that, like, it would be really easy, and it's a really common thing to have aggression depicted as just displaced affection or attraction, yeah. and that's not what it is. Yeah. Like, she she is 100% firmly rooted in her affection for and also desire to punch Arnold. Right. They are equal and separate things, right. which is pretty unique in my experience. Well, she's writing in her diary, she's rhapsodizing, she's stealing pieces of Arnold's hair, which... The more 90s media you watch, uh, the more things would definitely be arrestable offenses. <laughs> oh, man. Like, and it gets worse. Like, like, uh, it gets real bad. Uh, there's some stuff we're going to talk about in episode three that's, that just kind of yeah. goes uh, off the wall. But yeah, see, she steals her, she steals his hair. She slips it into her journal. Uh, and then as she's leaving, the bus. She drops her journal uh, into the hands of the person that she was writing her journal about. Of course. And I. This is the way of things. It is known. And, and this is why you should always write your journal in code, kids. Yeah, write your journal in code instead of the final yep. page of your book being yeah. a poem based your off name of in your an acrostic. name. Exactly. Like. Yeah. That. Which, I have to admit, from an artistic perspective, the marriage of artist and subject matter with the name acrostic poem, that was pretty good. Yeah. But, uh, and this is one of the problems I have in my episode later on, like, like, how did they not notice it was Helga's name the second they started reading that fucking poem? <laughs> well, and it's something we'll talk about later, is that, like, these kids are super cool. And they're super smart. They're also kind of idiot kids. Well, they're right? nine-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's... Yeah, they're nine-year-olds. Maybe they just didn't learn about acrostics yet. Yeah. That, like, that, I didn't that, know that's... about acrostics until, like, fourth grade. <laughs> I, I, I definitely think that, that uh, is an apt observation. Especially uh, considering that they're, they're, they never overtly say it, but Helga is probably, like, the smartest person in their grade. Oh, like, yeah. like, wise bond beyond her years in terms of, of of these kind of things. So, of course, she would know what acrostic is. She's probably doing acrostic poems uh, since she was a child. But exactly. uh, nobody else has seen it. They haven't gotten to that unit yet. She's writing epic poetic sagas in alternating meter and... and uh... Iambic pentameter? Yeah, the, the pentameter, that's what I was looking for. Oh, boy, I'm so glad I can edit out all that time where I was stupid. Um, but, like, yeah, she's 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 just going back and forth between haiku and sonnet and limerick all in the same poem, and it all rhymes perfectly. And, like, she's acing every test and assignment without even trying, and her teachers are just too scared of her to comment. Yeah. It's like, I, I would recommend her for the Honor Society. I'm just going to let her get the hell out of my classroom and become someone else's problem. That's another thing we'll talk about. The The teacher, uh, for the first part of the series, is kind of... Doesn't really want to be there. It isn't until Mr. Sims come in that, that we really... Oh, Mr. Sims. No, Mr. Simmons. Sorry. Simmons. Yeah. No, you're fine. No, I yeah, I completely forgot about that guy. Um, yeah, it's and I think that's probably a commentary on, like, inner-city school education stuff that we... again, as we spoke about in the last episode, that we don't really have any context for. Because, like, I went to a tiny private Christian school where I learned much later, uh, you don't even have to have a a certificate or a degree of any kind to be made a teacher. (laughs) Which explained a lot. (laughs) But, 
most of the people who were there teaching wanted to be there teaching and or couldn't get jobs elsewhere. So, uh, <laughs> so the idea of this teacher who was kind of stuck in this public school and just kind of riding that depressed train until retirement uh, wasn't really something that I had any experience with. That's for a later episode. There's entire that is for a later episode. Okay. So, uh, one of the things that's great about Helga is, one of the things that's great about this show is that every character has a unique voice. And when Helga is, especially when she's just talking to herself, she she slips into this, like, hyper-dramatic, uh, like, exaggerated. She realizes that her poems have been found, and she said, Those poems weren't meant to be seen until I'm dead and buried, and worms have consumed my flesh! <laughs> And it's it's encapsulating her her entire just like way of being that she's devoted herself to to language and the expression of things, well, but that also an, a, a perfectly valid way to express yourself is also punching. Well, it's also like like I, I think that 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 line in particular is 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 really interesting because like like you get the sense that Helga like like knows what she's about knows knows what her future is going to be like she's going to she she, oh, yeah. she already has this plan she's going to be this kind of underappreciated artist that is going to be yeah. celebrated for her genius uh once she is gone just like so many exactly. celebrated artists are like she has no like d- aspirations to be you know famous and and, and loved and uh, like admired until after she's gone no, no, yeah yeah uh, then they'll be sorry is is kind of her big plan yeah which I, I know I keep I keep mentioning this as foreshadowing, but it's just something I can't help noticing over and over again. Like then they'll be sorry in the context of the kind of parenting she's getting yeah. uh, is a real real problem. And like this this show has more seriously dark stuff in it than I realized when I watched it as a kid. Um, especially as we'll get into with the Stoop Kid episode. Oh my god! Yeah, next time. Yeah, rough stuff. But okay, so. Arnold and Gerald find the journal. Uh, they pursue a forensic investigation. Um, so, so the one, did I say forensic? Yeah, I meant forensic. So, so the first <laughs> they, one, they, they pursue a forensic investigation. One of the first notes I wrote about this episode was, "You've been watching way too much forensic files, Arnold." <laughs> like, yeah, like, for like real. You go in and they they have this entire like scientific setup. setup. Like, like they start like okay, they have like samples. Of, uh-huh. of different kinds of things uh, from a lot of students in their their class, which I'm kind yeah, of yeah, which what how they got it. Uh, so one of the first things is the bite mark uh, on the pencil. They compare it to like a retainer to other things. Like where right. the fuck did they get someone's retainer from? Like yeah. That's a good question. It's a question that deserves an answer, but it's one that I don't think we could be given without tarnishing Arnold in our eyes a little bit. Yeah. So they're doing they're doing all these tests. They got test tubes. They got flasks. They got bubble and beakers full of stuff. And Gerald is making hot cocoa. Yeah. And like, I, I keep I keep butting up against this that like we are given to understand that Arnold is the coolest, most competent kid, but he's also just a kid yeah. because they do this like this in depth thing, and he says fingerprints. Yep, they're human. <laughs> like and that, like that was ever a concern. <laughs> it's like, put it on the blackboard, Gerald. <laughs> We're looking for a human. Well, and here's here's the thing. Here's the one that really gets me. Like, like it's it's the comparison of the hair. Like, I feel like if someone showed me a pile of my hair, I would 
probably be like, yeah, that looks like my hair. Especially in, in a situation where every single person in this fucking universe has very, very unique hair and hairstyles. Oh, it's true. So, so yeah. uh, they're comparing, like, Arnold's hair, which, which that's the other thing. Like, like, who would put their own hair in, yeah. in a notebook about someone else that they're in love with? A love poem about someone else. Yeah, no, it's, it's a flawed, it's a flawed hypothesis is what it is. And I'm like, Arnold, this entire book is about you. Like, like, yep. and the hair is blonde and kind of spiky and looks exactly like something that would have come off your head. How the hell did you not yep. realize this was your own hair? Uh, but this is the first appearance of a uh, longtime uh, Arnold crush and sometimes MacGuffin, uh, Ruth McDougal. Ruth McDougal. Yeah, which uh, she's she's described as being a sixth grader. I don't know about you. When I was a small boy watching this, I thought Ruth was like a grown-ass woman, right? Yeah, but, but also when I was watching this, like... Yeah, Arnold's nine. He's almost an adult now. He knows what the fuck is going on in his life. He's allowed to exactly, travel Yeah, everywhere. he knows what's up. Like, like... Yeah, he's about to get a mortgage. <laughs> so, having failed with their, their comparison tests with bite marks and this and that, they, uh, they decided to embark upon a handwriting analysis. Which, honestly, not a bad plan. And also, one more reason to learn the gnomish alphabet from Artemis Fowl and keep your journal in that, like Casey did for many years. I... I... I, I, sorry, we need to frame this around something. Uh, going backwards a little bit, Helga, so distraught That's over right. the fact that she does not have this, her, like, secret identity is about to be ruined, has broken into Arnold's bedroom, uh, yep. has tried to find the book, and is, is viewing everything that we're doing uh, from the confines of Arnold's closet, which is yes. not the first time this will happen in this series. <laughs> No, it, not the first time, not the last time. And it's, there's, there's, there's this kind of, there's a trope where, you know, like a gaggle of wee dudes or a gaggle of girls will all be hanging out together, you know, se- separated into their gender groups and wondering what the other is doing. And there's always this kind of like, sort of sensationalized version of it going on in their heads you know is it what are they doing is it a is it a pillow fight but like in in the last season of stranger things they had a really good example of that where uh where mad max and l are just creeping using first of all that's a really big abuse of of remote viewing yeah. powers 11 that's not cool but also you're a small girl and apparently you don't have to play by the rules. But anyway, they're just hanging around being gross idiot dudes and like they hold it against them and that's not fair. Like what? <laughs> so so we get this we get this you know Helga is in this moment of rapture like, "Oh, I'm in his closet. What secrets will I learn?" And they're just hanging out being idiot dudes being really bad at science for like 6 hours. Yeah. So they go back like you said, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt your no, not at all. That's that's completely the Artemis Fowl movie, which is coming out next yeah. to never. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I'm fine with that, dude. Like, we don't. Not everything needs to be a movie. It's fine. It can just be a book. Like somebody once said, I forget who. Like, could you make a pretty good stage adaptation of Citizen Kane? Yeah, you probably could. Doesn't mean you should. I don't understand the the, the hype about that fucking movie. Like, I watch it. That movie is so fucking boring. I don't understand why that's the greatest movie of all time. 
Uh, gonna gonna hurt my own cred here. Actually, never seen it uh, because I'm scared I won't get it. Ah, <laughs> uh, I mean, I saw it when I was like, I was forced to watch it in my visual communications class in high school. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's fucking could be a factor. Boring. I don't understand why people yeah. still celebrate and love that fucking movie. Like, maybe it's really okay. So uh, one of the things I'm doing a lot of lately is listening to a Star Trek podcast called The Greatest Generation. Mm-hmm. They go over like all the episodes of TNG and uh, DS9. They'll be going into Voyager, and like both of the hosts are like filmers, like camera people and film editors and filmographers. So like they talk a lot about the technical aspects of filmmaking and what makes one episode visually really good like apparently I I didn't realize this until they started talking about it like you know Jonathan Frakes directed a handful of episodes of TNG and apparently he has a very distinct visual directing style and once they started pointing that shit out I couldn't help but notice it and it's really interesting it's fun stuff it is it's great stuff and it's given me the ability to turn to my wife while we're watching it and say they're doing some really fun camera stuff this season and get blank stare number three (laughs) yay but um the point is maybe maybe that's maybe citizen kane maybe it's not like an entertaining good story movie but maybe it's a really well 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 so so i mean i'm assuming it is like there's a lot of like uh, lore behind how that movie was created that I think is actually more fascinating right. than the movie it is. Um, um, right, because it's a thinly it's a thinly veiled commentary on um, Hearst. Right? Yes, uh, but also uh, Orson Welles uh, hot off his uh, almost world destroying uh, radio show uh, was given yeah. free. Uh, radio- Orson Welles just plain hot, actually. So after after his War of the Worlds radio show. Uh, Right, the movie studio was like, uh, "Make whatever you want." Like we are not yeah, going they to Christopher stop Nolan you. him. Yeah, and, and that's why he's like, "I'm gonna make uh, uh, a movie uh, making fun of the guy that owns pretty much every media company in the entire world." Uh, and yep. there we have Citizen Kane. Uh, spoiler alert for everybody: uh, Rosebud is his fucking sled, uh, and I just saved oh, you three hours of of bullshit. <laughs> So they they embark upon a handwriting analysis, and this is another joke that I didn't get as a kid, but get now, which is they start comparing handwriting, which apparently Arnold has the signature of everyone in his school, which A, implausible, and B, just highlights that Arnold is a cool fucking cat, that he is like a Ferris Bueller without the sociopathy, like everyone thinks he's a cool dude. (laughs) But uh, they start, and then it gets dark, the comparison being that this is taking them hours and hours, and I didn't get that. I went to a school with 400 people in it. It wouldn't have taken that long. <laughs> but, like, public schools are, what is it, like, thousands of kids? Uh, I mean, when you get to, like, a high school it is, I think I had, well, I don't know. I guess maybe there was, like, a thousand kids. Uh, That's a lot, yeah. From kindergarten. That's a goof that was lost on me. A lot of K through 6, like, like mm-hmm. in. so I have no idea. But it's also inner city, Fair. like, like. Overcrowding exactly. is a thing, you know, there's probably way more skids in that school than there needs to be. Um, Inner city pressure. Uh, I do want to backtrack for one thing. This is just a funny observation I had. Um, they have uh, uh, Arnold's favorite pet, Abner, uh, smell yep. Arnold's hair, uh, because uh, in Arnold's mind, having a dog or a, a dog-like substitute... 
uh, is all you yeah. need to go out on a like a, a search and rescue, whatever you want to call it, bloodhound adventure. Uh, yeah. Uh, so he has Abner smell the the hair. They run out. They come back, uh-huh. and uh, instead of finding anything, Arnold drops like ten thousand dollars worth of truffles on his yep. floor. <laughs> Which is a really good goof. Yeah, uh, and what's funny is is I like I haven't seen this episode in forever, but uh, Abner's like running out the room. I don't remember that the punchline is they find truffles, but my first thought is Abner's not going to find anything. All he's going to find is fucking truffles, and then they go yep. and they drop all these truffles on the ground. That's it. There are so many jokes in this show that. And it's it's not, like, original or interesting to say, they put jokes for grown-ups in, too. But, like, even when I was in, like, third fucking grade, I was reading a book about how if you if you can get a pig, you can use them to find truffles, but you better give them some acorns so they don't eat, they don't eat the truffles before you can get them. And so that, that probably kicked my ass when I was a kid. Like, truffles! I get that! That's a reference for me and truffle hunting. Um, it's good stuff. Another thing that got me... So when they when they take off to go find some stuff, um, Helga or no, this was the night before probably. Helga calls her best friend Phoebe, who, to whom I don't think we've been properly introduced yet, but her, um, you know, the Marcy to her peppermint Patty, and says, uh, "Yo, tell your folks that you're staying with me. I'll tell mine that I'm staying with you. I'm indisposed. Don't worry about it." Which really <laughs> highlights the nature of their relationship. That it's not they're not friends. <laughs> Phoebe just does stuff that Helga says. <laughs> But my point was that in 1996, Helga has a cell phone, which is strange enough in its own right, but her father is the Beeper King, Big Bob Pataki. Yes, but, 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 uh, it is revealed in a later episode that Bob sells not only beepers, but cell phones as well. Oh, does he? Okay, yeah, cool. There's, All right. there's, then uh, I'll allow it. There's... There's the episode where they make a, a float for their parade, and Arnold mm-hmm. designs downtown as this giant carnival. Big Bob sponsors it, turns the entire float into a giant beeper, in which all the kids are mm-hmm. sitting upon it dressed as cell phones. Uh, okay. So for me, this very this good. Was, I'll allow it. Then. For me, this was not that huge of a deal. This is what Big Big Bob Tacky sells. Of course, he is going to give his daughter. Uh, a cell phone. The cream of the crop. Yeah. You gotta be out there on the town showing off them big Bob Pataki wares. Gotta say, what? This? I got it down at the Beeper Hut. Although, it occurred to me that maybe it was like a youthful rebellion. Like, if her, you know, if she came from Beeper people, like, no. I'm a cell phone girl. So what happens? What's the conclusion of the episode, Tony? Um, well, they, uh, spend all night comparing, uh, handwriting. Uh, they stop at Helga. So they go through an alphabetical order. Um, Yep. And by the time they get to Helga, they are so burnt out that they don't want to do this anymore. Um, right. Which I think is hilarious because if they had spent, if they had just looked at Helga's handwriting, uh, everything would have been burned out. Uh, Helga spends the night sleeping in Arnold's closet, which begs the question, how the fuck did she not get caught in the morning? Like, does Good Arnold question. only wear the same single pair of clothes every single fucking day of the week? I mean, I know he dresses the same. But right. uh, does he do that? Well, you know, when you're up late doing science, the purity of the the investigative spirit it cleanses your clothes for you. It is known. So yeah. Also, so like they're stopping at Pataki, which is right at the beginning of the peas. 
there are like ten letters after P. They got like halfway through the alphabet and they're just giving up. Well, I think Arnold was just like, I want to see, like, he wanted to see Ruth McDougall's uh, signature. Uh, once we got That's to, fair. and let's, uh, like, I mean, McDougal is, is like right at the beginning of the M's, but you have no idea if there's anybody with other M names. It could be Ruth McDougal and then Helga Pataki is the next one. Uh, yeah, all right. And Arnold was like, I'll I'm just it. done. Like, it's not Ruth. I don't fucking care anymore. They go to bed. She wakes up. She goes to the, uh, the school in the same clothes, looking like she slept uh, in a closet, which I think they do a really good job of, like, like showing wear and tear on, on like, these kids. Like, Helga looks yeah. like she, like... She looks rumpled. Yeah, in yeah. my mind, this is exactly how I would look if I didn't sleep all night and, and slept in some closet, just being terrified that I'm going to get caught. And that's, that's what she looks yeah. like. She goes to the school, and they've read the entirety of her fucking journal... Uh, they are on the last. Uh, what is the the name of the poem you called it? What did you call it? Uh, the acrostic. Yeah, they they read the acrostic poem, which again, I'm I'm a little frustrated that they didn't just read down first and see that it's spelled Helga, and and that's the other thing. Like they get to like L or G when they're reading it, mm-hmm. and they can't even like just be like, oh, just make the jump for that. Oh, this must be Helga's. Uh, no. Helga's panicking because her entire secret's about to be caught. So she does what I think is actually a brilliant move. Uh, she runs up, grabs the paper, turns it into a spitball, and throws it at Arnold. Evidence destroyed. The day is saved. Helga is not hoist by her own uh, poetic petard. And uh, the world moves on as, as it always has. And the mystery will... Now see, if I were Arnold, if I were a young man, and I found a journal dedicated to me full of full of poetry rhapsodizing about me and I just never fucking found out who that shit would haunt me right yeah i i i mean like so i i was one of those fourth graders who had like just i don't know what it is about being a fourth grader and a hopeless romantic like i definitely had a yep. a helga crush on someone when i was in the fourth grade uh i gave uh, I gave her chocolates on Valentine as a secret admirer, and and, Aww, and more than likely this was fucking uh, just this show's influence on me and my like ideas of love. That's like that's a thing. Probably. Like like uh, I attribute a lot of like like my approaches to love uh, and my kind of hopeless romantic I- ideal that I had for most of my life. Uh, because of TV shows, Helga, uh, mm-hmm. Boy Beats World, like all these different things. Yep. Uh, so, but but so that was a big, huge deal, and then it wasn't because I'm a fucking fourth grader and I've got Pokemon to catch, right? And and, and shit yeah, for to real, do. like 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 that Dragonite ain't gonna level himself exactly. up. But yeah, I I get that because like ever since I was a little kid. Like, I've always... It's something they always show in cartoons and television, is that when little kids... Little kids are capital I, capital L, in love. Like, it's never treated that Helga just has, like, a crush on Arnold, or that she just thinks he's cute or anything. Like, she is 100% convinced soulmates, she will die on this hill. And, like, when you're a little kid, when you've been alive for, like, 
eight years and this is like the first thing you've ever felt about another person like yeah it feels like you know this is this is a consuming thing yeah. and uh i i think a lot of, i'm not going to say it's it was like a negative influence or anything but i think a lot of us kind of took validation from that portrayal which is not what it was supposed to do like you're supposed to look at, at helga and say no she's an insane schoolgirl with an insane schoolgirl crush right this is this is unhealthy in its core and in its expression and when she grows up and becomes more mature she's going to find better ways of doing this but when you're a small child watching this you're like you know what helga same yeah. like and it's just it reinforces <laughs> and doubles down this frankly pretty unhealthy behavior and like yeah like i want to be in love like helga is i I think she's yep. she's like like such a romantic blah 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 uh so fantastic and i think we were probably too young to realize how much helga ended up being her own worst enemy in that oh yeah and like 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 yeah. as we go through it's just it just gets worse and worse and worse it really does it's a different watch as grown-ass it, human it's beings. a different watch as as like like i did this watch through like two years ago and like i was just in it for the enjoyment not necessarily uh to actually analyze this and and just like being able to sit down and be like okay what is actually happening here what are they actually saying what are they trying to say Mm -hmm. about this episode right now uh has really changed my perspective even like like the stoop kid kid episode which again wait till episode three we'll talk about that uh Stoop Kid is a bomb dropping on this city. Let me tell you. Uh, um, like, like this was the first time I sat down and be like, okay, this is kind of not the situation that I thought it was, even the last time I watched yeah. it. All right, so that's uh, that's the conclusion of Little Pink Book. So, season one, episode two, part two, field trip in which we meet Lockajaw. Yeah. So. They are heading to the city aquarium, and I I really like that it's just the city, that it's never... I mean, because the implication to me when I was a kid was that it was New York or Metropolis or some other New York analog, well, right? But it could be it could be anything. Well, yeah, city, like, I, like uh, I, I mean, in my mind, this was New York. Oh, they live in New York. This makes sense. They live in New York. Uh, going back, right. uh, it's an amalgamation of New York, Chicago, Boston, like any major city. Certainly. It's got, it's got some L.A. flavor to it sometimes. Yeah. So they're going to the aquarium, they get into the aquarium, the aquarium man is listing off all the things they're not allowed to bring in. No weapons, no food, no drink, no skateboards, no sushi sushi chefs. (laughs) And this dejected sushi chef in full, his apron, and he got his knives out just standing. I don't know about you, but if I was at the aquarium and there was a guy standing behind me just holding knives, I would probably bring it to the attention of the security personnel. Here's the thing, like, like rules in general are created once there is a big enough problem that they have well, to yeah. create the rule so that's true so there has to be precedent i wonder yeah. like how many rare fish have been killed and and taken away and and whatever because a sushi and like this dude like is going to make sushi right there so he's probably like hey who wants, exactly you who wants eugene's angel fish <laughs> like let's get some fugu up in here that is the extent of my sushi knowledge. Thank you, early 90s Simpsons episode. So, 
they're going to see the famous Lockjaw. And Arnold was sick the last time they went to the aquarium in, like, the uh, first grade or whatever. Yeah. So he doesn't know from Lockjaw. And he's trying to get the down low on what a Lockjaw is. And he's going around looking at the moray eels saying, hey, is that a Lockjaw? And everybody's scoffing his poor ass and saying, dude, if you have to ask who Lockjaw is... But, but and like we, we talked about earlier, this is like our really first introduction to the kind of massive mythology that this show has created. Uh, Correct. Within these yeah, Lockjaw is our first real, real mythological figure. So he sees a shark, and the shark, like, like eats another fish. And he's like, is that Lockjaw? And, and Harold is like, no, Lockjaw could fucking, like, pulverize this, this shark with, like, one yeah. swipe. Like, like... Grow up, Arnold. Learn the fuck. Come on, Arnold. Learn the fuck. You think this is a fucking yeah. joke? Learn who the fuck Lockjaw is and stop asking stupid questions. <laughs> Which is particularly good coming from Harold. Yeah. yeah. So, eventually, the the awaited hour has come. They go to this uh, pit. Somebody hits a button. And this VO starts about how, like, from the primal seas of one million years ago comes the terror of the deep, Lockjaw. And it's a big old tortoise. Okay. Well, turtle, I suppose, because he's got the flappers, right? Not feet. Yeah, I, I don't know what the difference between the, no, the two of them are. Well, if he's, got, if he's got fins, if he's got flappers, then he's a turtle. If he's got steppers, he's a he's tortoise. A, he's a turtle, then. He's got the flappy. Okay, he's a turtle. He's like a sea turtle. Yes. And, like, the thing I love is uh, the kids begin to abuse Lockjaw as soon as he appears. His shell is covered in graffiti. Uh, his gu- his tank is full of garbage, whatever. But here's the thing. They hit the button, and Lockjaw shows the fuck up. Lockjaw is a professional, yeah. right? It's not about how the audience reacts. It's about him. He is there to do his job and do it right. This... This reveal like like I, I don't have a whole lot of memories of childhood like like yeah. but seeing Lockchalk come out of the ocean I mean whatever that little pool he has elicited such a visceral yeah. reaction for me as a seven year old I was deeply mm-hmm. deeply upset at what I saw there yeah. and I th- it's extremely upsetting and I think they do a really good job at that because like it's really hard like uh, if I could diverge for just a second, um, uh, the Lion King movie, um, Simba's dad dies, and it's supposed to be this very, very hard... Simba's dad. Yeah, Mufasa's... you know Simba's dad, Jeff the Lion. <laughs> what? Mufasa dies. I mean, the point is, the point is, like, 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 it's his father that dies. Like, like, right. Like Mufasa dies. It's Simba's dad. Simba is heartbroken, he's sad, he's upset, whatever. Four-year-old Anthony was like, oh, great, Mufasa's dead. That means uh, Simba now gets to hang out with Timon and Pumbaa for the rest of the movie, which was fucking awesome. Because I'm a four-year-old, and the the implication that this kid's dad just fucking died is... is, Yeah, is lost on you. Is lost on me. But seven-year-old Anthony looked at that turtle and said, that is the most fucked up shit I have ever seen in my life. How the fuck are they treating this turtle the way they did? Even, I think, even if if you're not old enough to really have a grasp of life and death, you're always old enough as an animal, I think, to have a conception of being 
trapped. And that's what Lockjaw is. He's trapped. He's a monster who's trapped in a tank, and kids are throwing garbage at him, and he has no no choice but to just take it. And that is an existentially horrifying concept. It is an existentially horrifying concept to Arnold himself. He is shocked and, and felt really, like, gross. Uh, Harold throws a milkshake and lands on the shell of the turtle. And everybody is like, yep. this is the best thing ever. He fucking made the shot. And Arnold is just like, F this noise. Leaves his friends, goes down, uh, and... and I like, I like the idea that Arnold has like can make connections with everybody and anything. Yes, in this world. it's a recurring theme. Yeah, there's nothing with which Arnold cannot connect. There is no one so far gone that Arnold won't at least try to help them. Arnold is the moral center of this universe. But he he goes down and he goes down because like like all aquariums, there is an upper part and a lower part. So he goes down to see the observation like bubble, the the fish tanky part yeah. of it. And Lockjaw's like, oh Arnold's leaving. I'm gonna go talk to him now. Comes right up comes yeah. right up to the, the, the thing with them. Like like Lockjaw knows you what's get up. the sense that they're really communicating with each other. Uh, they put their hands yeah. up and touch each other. He puts his little flappy paw up yeah. on the window. It's oh he's so cute. Yeah. But like it fundamentally changes Arnold. <laughs> like like It does. It kind of breaks him to see this creature who probably older than all of those kids put together, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, turtles live to be 300 yeah. or yeah. whatever. They're like Wookiees. Yeah. yeah. So Arnold is shooketh by this. Uh, he goes home. A little Girl Scout traumatizes him with her accent and her caramel cookies. And uh, he enlists the aid of Grandma in what I believe is her first yes. appearance. Yes? Yes. Yes. Um, Grandma. Pookie. Gertie. Uh, she's doing something weird. I don't remember what she was doing. But I did write uh, Grandma Gertie making sundowning fun since 96. Uh, so, yeah, that's about right. So I'm assuming she's doing something kind of senile and not really understanding where she is. But Arnold kind of talks to her about what the fuck is going on. Like, like. Yeah, he feels, he feels this situation at her. And he's doing that kid thing where, like, there's that kid thing of, like, you know... My friend really has a problem, and you can never convince an adult that it really is your friend, yeah. right? Even if it's legitimately your friend who has the problem, you're like, uh-huh, yeah, sure. Dave pooped himself, yeah. right. But... Fucking Dave. Fucking Dave. There's the other end of that where, like, you have a completely unrelatable problem, and you're trying to mask it in terms that will make it, like, something you can discuss with people. And it just doesn't work. Because he does this, and he turns to Grandma and he says, Grandma, how would you feel if a bunch of scientists captured you and put you in a tank? <laughs> and Gertie flips her shit. Yeah. She they'll never take me alive! And, <laughs> and to which he has to reply, Grandma, Grandma, no, it's a hypothetical question. You're fine. It's, it's interesting because, like, like... You don't really notice this your first watch through, but Gertie is one of the most fascinating people in this entire show. Like, which is like, saying something. She used to be like a cop, I think. Like, just so many different things. So, like in my yeah. mind, I bet you, like, like at one point, 
she was going to be captured by a lab and and like like wouldn't be the first time locked up yeah, yeah. like like you you get the sense that she's kind of senile uh, that this might actually be sundowning but at the same time like she always has the chops to back it up uh, in a later episode she's a fucking karate master like like teaches yep. Arnold how to fucking do karate uh, she fucking goes down into that's the my subway. favorite episode uh, she goes down into the fucking subway system and and hot wires a giant subway back together to fucking yep. work for like to have it work like like well and okay what's what's interesting is like you can talk about Gertie's incredibly loose grasp on the world around her which is a valid talking point but like we have to examine okay you, if you look at like sure productions you've got like Parks and Rec the Office um, the Good Place and Brooklyn Nine Nine, right? And they're all—they've all got a very similar flavor to them, but they've all got different articulations. The Office is roughly normal people in a roughly normal world, right? Nothing—nothing nothing about the show is—is is too ridiculously outrageous. You've got Parks and Rec, which is roughly normal people in a definitely stranger world, right? Pawnee is not normal; some weird shit goes on there. You've got Brooklyn Nine Nine, which is very strange people in a very normal world. And it's you. You have different articulations along those axes of strange v normal, and the good place, of course, is just its own its own point. It's the the, the it's good place the, is the z axis. It's, it's, We're not going to worry the, about that it's one. The dot above the i in Jeremy Barry. <laughs> exactly. Yes, that's what it is. So, what I mean to say by that is that the world that Arnold lives in is decidedly skewed a little bit towards the stranger, right? Yeah. Because it does have these mythological figures, it does have a ghost train, and we're never 100% sure whether this world is genuinely a slightly strange place or whether this is just childhood's perspective on that, which is, right? Which is, it, it's fascinating, like, what you said, because maybe that's one of the reasons why they took such time in the first two episodes to set up how imaginative of a person Arnold is, uh, because right, kind of dugging it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, like 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 really going at it. Because then they can take a step back and oh, this world is kind of fantastical, but it might be fantastical because Arnold is just a very because of, it's kid. through the, the eyes of a fourth grader, yeah. right? So my my point in all of that was like Gertie has got more than a few screws loose, but we are never really given a definitive answer on, like, how deranged she is for the value of realism for this world, yeah. right? Like, she could genuinely have been all these things. She could have been a cop and a rodeo clown and lived inside a whale for three years and all the shit that she says at some point, and that could have just been the life she led. Yeah. Or she could be an old woman who's losing her mind. Or she could be both. Yeah. And I think I think the way the series progresses, and it does get it gets it gets stranger as it goes along, um, as I think most good shows do. I think that really lends itself to Gertie having a very adventurous life because she she makes mention she's a real like Mona Simpson type. Yeah, you know those episodes yeah. where Homer's mom shows up, just talking about how she's a real Forrest Gump. Like whenever anything significant happened in history, she was there. Like it, you know breaking into Nixon's office or whatever. Um, but the point is, they're gonna they're gonna utilize those skills here because 
the, the other thing that's great about Grandma is that she is always 100% down to help. Yeah. Always 100%. She's here to party. She is ready to do whatever. So all Arnold has to do is say, yo, they got his turtle locked up, and it makes me hella sad. And she's like, fuck it! We're breaking that turtle okay, out! No, it's not just that. It's it's an old turtle. And this is, this is something that I think... Yeah, uh, that's a point. So this episode does two things. It, 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 it has this environmental issue. It has this are zoos ethical? Are are aquariums nope. ethical? Uh, nope. I, I disagree, but that is for another another different conversation. Another conversation. Uh, I think something like this aquarium is not ethical, but I don't think. Anyways, um, like like I, I'll I'll say that they could be done ethically, but that by and large they are not. Uh, I would agree, but the ones that do, like the big ones, like. Uh, San Diego Zoo, I think, is a very, very ethical zoo. Uh, their wild mm-hmm. animal parker is pretty ethical. Um, I don't know. I th- I feel like if you've got creatures and you're like, we know that in the wild, these fish live to be 50 or 60 years old. We don't know why they die at 15 in well, our yes, custody. Who the fuck SeaWorld. cares? It doesn't matter if you can figure it out or not. Just stop I, it. That's SeaWorld, though. That's not... That's not San Diego Zoo. They're two different companies. Okay, fair enough. Um, fair enough. I did not realize that. That's fair. Um, Go on. Uh, anyways, this is beyond the point. But you have so so you have the old tur- old turtle. Yeah, old turtle. Is it ethical to keep an old turtle in uh, what is definitely like a very very kind of shady ass? Which I'll talk about in a few yeah. minutes because the guard that that works there is the most fucked up human being I've seen on this entire show. Uh, yeah. Um. You have this. Is it is it ethical to keep animals? This this creature is super old. Like he's obviously being mistreated. How do you how do we allow something like this to happen? On the other end, you have yeah, Grandma Gertrude who uh, is upset at the idea of elder abuse, which I don't think right. uh, Craig Bartlett was like intending to to kind of like have that 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 subtext on this episode but the second arnold says that this turtle is old uh gertie just loses her shit she's on board she's like she's like yeah. and he's old and he's old and he's doing all these things and he's old like you should be mm-hmm. respecting your elders you should not be abusing them uh correct and so like every nine-year-old kid and their grandma they go and yep. fucking jailbreak the shit out of this this turtle. Yes, they okay. Well, she and Arnold says, "Grandma, what are we doing?" And first of all, Grandma is played. I'm pretty sure it's Tress yeah, McNeil, it right? Yeah, and and Grandpa is Tom Kenny. Uh, some really powerful voices on this show, and like Tress McNeil and Tom Kenny are still doing what they're doing, yeah. and they're still kicking the game's ass. But like in the mid '90s. Like one of every three shows had these people. Yeah. It was either them or Billy West. Yeah. So these are these are names and powers here. But she just turns to Arnold and she says, "We're taking action. We're righting a wrong. We're grasping at straws." <laughs> and Grandma's gr- Grandma's vernacular is another thing I think that really influenced me as a kid. Especially if you do two serious things and a joke, you're probably going to get away with it. And that's <laughs> that has really informed my life as I've moved on. So it's action, Grandma. They uh, they go to the aquarium by dead of night. They're dressed in their break most break and enterish outfits. 
Uh, Grandpa says, come on, Arnold, I've, I brought our burgling supplies. They reach into the trunk of the Studebaker. I'm pretty sure yeah. that is. And uh, all she's brought is, like, knitting supplies because she's an old woman with dementia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For my for my confederacy of dunces pals out there, she's a real Miss Trixie, and and but but still, they like put the coal on their faces and they sneak in. Uh, Phony, as you noted, the aquarium guard is just torturing animals yeah. all night. He's he's feeding he's feeding uh, uh, a penguin something. I don't know what it is. It's definitely something the penguin doesn't want to eat. But the penguin is hungry. It's a cookie. But the penguin is hungry enough that he wants to eat this, which makes me feel like: right. Are they feeding these animals? Are they doing anything? He he feeds the penguin a cookie. The co- the uh, the penguin eats the cookie and just throws it up. And, Barfs it, and, yep. and just it's like this vicious cycle. And the guard's like, "Here, have a cookie, ha ha! You you tossed your cookie. Here, have another cookie. Over and ha, over ha, again. You tossed your yeah. cookie. I'm like, wow, like." It's it's messed up that the guard is doing this. I choose to believe that penguins are like dogs, which is that if they are alive and they see food, they will eat it. That it's not like, I, I choose to believe that the penguin wasn't starving, because that is an image that my heart cannot withstand. <laughs> At this point, though, like, like my heart's already broken. I feel dirty about, about this fucking aquarium. Like, like it does not yeah. matter. Like, every animal is being mistreated in my mind. If one animal is, all of them are. Uh, yeah, there there was fucking trash at the bottom of Lockjaw's tank, like cans yeah. and stuff. It's like, real bad. It it's a real disgusting. free willy situation. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if that's was this before or after free willy? I, think I actually wrote that down as my notes. Uh, this was Arnold is the original free willy. I think free willy. Well, came let's in, find out. So this was this was in ninety six. Hey free, Google, when did free willy I come think out? It came out in ninety four. Oh, okay. Yeah, 93. So there was more than enough time for it to have entered the cultural, yeah. you know, mythology and headspace. Yeah, this could easily be Arnold's Free Willy. Yeah. Um, so they go, they struggle to get him out because he weighs 400 goddamn pounds, yeah. which is fair. And they have to, and because Arnold is the, Arnold is the lawful moral center of this universe, right? He's lawful good. And Gertie is the chaotic good center of this universe. Um... And he asks her, he says, Grandma, is this, I, I'm pretty sure this is against the law. And I wrote down one of the greatest lines I've ever heard in my life, which is, against the law of the king, perhaps, but against the law of common decency? I think not. It, it's fascinating. I wonder how many kids in our generation, like, like took that really to heart. Because I definitely feel yeah. like us in particular uh, have this, have this definitely... If a law is unfair and unjust, it should not be followed, uh, which yeah. is... The defiance of an unjust law is an act of yeah. justice. Yeah. And I think I think it's between this and Batman the Animated Series <laughs> that really, really ingrained in our generation that, like, the law and morality are separate things. That they may interact at times but that they are are fundamentally not the same thing. So they get Lockjaw the fuck out of there while the getting's good. Uh, that um, shitheel guard gets kicked oh, into a tank with a shark in. So, so here's my only problem with, with this escape thing. Uh, at the beginning yeah. of the episode, when they press the button, uh, one of the first thing 
that the this guy in the speaker says is Lockjaw is a rare, rare and endangered Galapagos yep. sea turtle. So I get it, Arnold. Like, uh, maybe this is the best place for a sea turtle to be. Uh, right. But maybe he's arguably in better than in the wild for a reason because. If right. he's out there, he might die. But I don't know. It's 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 like this catch twenty two. He's definitely gonna die in this fucking tank if they're not taking care of him, or right. they can send him out. But he's rare and endangered, and and uh, Arnold may have single handed and presumably delicious. And Arnold may have yeah. single handedly destroyed the the rest of like any chance. Yeah, this this may be an act of xenocide. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's really the central question. They they toss Lockjaw off the pier like you yeah. do, and um and into this water that is just as filthy as the water they just rescued him yeah. from. It's full of garbage. It's disgusting. And you know they wish him Godspeed, and off he goes, not looking particularly grateful. And like yeah, you point out he's a Galapagos. The Galapagos are like some tropical islands. If this is the East Coast, that water is freezing. That's gonna kill him. Yeah. And like this is the central question that the episode asks of us: Is releasing Lockjaw the right thing to do? Or is it the lesser of two evils? I definitely think it's the lesser of two evils. Uh, yeah. Like I said, the, the fucking Agree. turtle like was being horribly mistreated. I would rather yeah. like an animal fend for... like Ideally, what would have happened is, is a conservation group, another aquarium that actually takes care of their animals and actually is there for preservation rather than for... Yeah amusement exploitation exactly um would have taken him and lockshaw would have had a happy life uh clean and 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 able to do what he wants to do uh but because that isn't really an option uh let's send the turtle into the ocean because at least he has a fighting chance that he could get back get back to where he needs to be right because it's not like if he's rare, he's endangered, he's one of the last of his kind, it's not like they're making more of him yeah. there at the zoo. Like, it's... And this episode is one of the first introductions I had as a child to the idea that sometimes you just don't know. Sometimes there's no definitive answer, there's no clean ending, sometimes you, you just have to do what you can do, and that has to be enough. And it ends, as so many of these episodes do, just on this... You know, we keep coming around to the word melancholy, and it is. It's kind of a fundamentally sad show. Yeah. And it's it's just Grandma and Arnold just watching Lockjaw take off into the sunrise and, and wishing him well. And that's just it. And he has a very special relationship with Grandma because she has this very detached view of the world she's able to connect with him and a lot of his a lot of his issues in a way that other people aren't yeah. and so they just sit there and bond over having done this this patently insane thing and like a lot of stuff so these are some things i wrote about this episode um yeah give the, me your thoughts. the guard is fucking the worst guard ever we already established that yeah so fuck bad that guy. in fact beyond that, being a bad person he's bad at his job yeah, the fucking aquarium is wide open, like, not yep. locked, he's not in his gate. Like, the door, they don't even have to open doors, they just walk right through. Um, open plan architecture, the cause of all aquarium like, crime. Like, like, they got really lucky in doing this. The, the fucking doors yeah. were open. 
Um, the guard ends up in a shark well, tank, uh, which I pretty good. fucking love. Nobody invested in his idea. So this is this was a real tone setter. The first two episodes uh, were, or the first, you know, the, the first episode and the two bits we saw there, uh, Downtown is Fruits and Eugene's Bike, they were they were good goofs. They were fun little idea pieces around a central, you know, uh, conflict or central thing that was well, going on. This is the first... Go they, ahead. The, the first two episodes do a really good job of world building. Uh, you get an establishment yeah. of... Like, the first episode gets to show who all these kids are as characters. Yeah. Um, the second one is a good, like, introduction to what the city is and what the city has to offer. Right. And, and Names and faces and places. And both yeah. of them, and, and, and it kind of gives you an idea of uh, who Arnold is, what Arnold is trying to do, without, without like, really being like, no, Arnold is this moral paragon, He's always trying to... Right, without cramming it down your throat. And they did it in a funny, humorous way. That way, they can come into this episode very next, and it is a very, very not funny episode. Like, I... Like, for the first two, like, I have a lot of, like, just, these are funny notes, but this one is very, very much just... This is kind of a effed up, fucked up situation, you know? And, yeah, there's this... And and the, the conflict between Arnold's and Gertie's perspectives is like at one point uh, we're given to understand that Lockjaw has bitten Gertie's hand off, yeah. and Arnold is briefly but genuinely terrified. He just goes, and I I can't state enough how powerful the voice acting is on this show because the kid who plays Arnold, uh, the first Arnold rather, I believe there were four, um, he just does this little grandma yeah. that like it's it's played for laughs to we the audience because we know grandma's hand didn't get just bitten off but he is a genuinely terrified child who thinks that like okay grandma and I are going to go on this adventure we're going to we're going to jailbreak a, a big shell boy and like now grandma lost her damn hand what do we do with that and it's only momentary and she shoves her hand out of the sweater but it's like you have to understand it this is what living with this woman is like yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a really really good episode um, and it it really nicely set the tone, and as much as the first two were world building and character building, these really this this really helped to cement and dig that down there. That Arnold is lawful good, if not like, because that's the question about lawful versus chaotic good. Like, is Batman chaotic good because he breaks the law, or is he lawful good because his code is stricter than the law? Uh, he he's is breaking? definitely lawful good. And I think, like, when I've done, like, the superhero charts, I've always put Batman yeah. as the lawful good. Well, I don't know. That's a different conversation. We don't have time to get into that. That's a whole other thing. But the point is, like, it. this is what sets up that, like, as much as Arnold... Arnold tries to do the right thing the right way, right? But when that isn't possible... <laughs> That's when we've got Grandma, because she is... I have always said... You're a, fr- you're a fan of Frasier, right, Tony? Nope. I have never seen... Okay, the, never like, mind. Most episodes. Like, I've, I've, I've caught Fair it enough. when it's been on, but I've never actually sat down and watched it. Don't worry it. about it. You're fine. So, my favorite character in any show is the one who is most loosely connected to the reality of that world and who doesn't have to follow quite the same rules because they're from a slightly different version of that world. Uh, The best example possibly would be, on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Gina Linetti, right? Yeah. She's she's a real... uh, 
she's a real great gazoo. Like she does she doesn't exist in the same world the same way that all the other characters do. And Grandma is kind of the same way. Her her tenuous connection to the world around her allows her to get away with things that other people wouldn't be able right. to. And this is uh, this is a great example of that. That who knows what Phil's doing? Who knows what's going on back at the boarding house? Grandma's just going to bust a turtle out of fucking jail because that's what she decided to do today. And not a power on the verse will stop her. I think I think there's a later episode where they, she goes out and does something like that. Oh, it's the the subway episode yeah. where where Grandpa's just like. Uh, what are you doing? To, what are you doing, Gertie? And she's like, I'm gonna go rescue the kids from the subway. And and Phil's just <laughs> like, Okay, Pookie, just make sure you're home soon, or or something like that. God, it's so good. All right, well, we run long, but uh, this is a really good episode, uh, both of the show and of our show. I think I enjoyed this a lot. Phony, do you have any uh, closing thoughts or comments? Um, guys, if you see a Galapagos turtle. Uh, being mis- mistreated in your local aquarium. Bust him the fuck out. No, call the proper authorities. Yeah. Don't just... You are the proper authority. Him. No authority but yourself. Don't just push him into the Take ocean. Take the law into your own hands. Just push him into the ocean. Push him into the ocean! Do it! He'll be fine there. Uh, and as always, <laughs> if you are a sushi chef, you are not allowed to go to the aquarium. <laughs> Stay the fuck out. I don't care if you bought a season pass. That was your problem and your mistake. All right, all our buddies, uh, you can find us on Twitter, probably. I haven't made a Twitter yet, probably by the time. If these ever air, we'll have a Twitter by then. Um, we, it'll probably be at Gerald. three episodes, that's already one more episode than our last podcast. Touche. So, uh, yeah, it'll our Twitter handle will probably be Gerald Field Report or similar. You'll find us. We'll, we'll spam the hell out of it on our other accounts. Speaking of which, uh, if you like, you can listen to our pal Dylan and his Mrs. Christina and I play Dungeons & Dragons over at Dice & Virtue, or you can listen to our buddy Nick and I discuss the Sherlock Holmes canon over at The Final Podblum. It's a lot of fun. Get at us. Uh, so subscribe to our Patreon. Uh, help donate money to this show. Uh, which if you which, like, you don't have to. No, no pressure, but you can if you uh, like. Which pays for things like pop filters and website space and yes, uh, stuff like that. And if that you do become us. a Patreon member, uh, you get bonus content. You get episodes of all our shows a week early before they air. Uh, you get bonus unreleased stuff that we never that never quite made it to air for one reason or another. You get our pre-show jibber jabber. It's it's a lot of fun. It's some bang for your buck. You get buck, a fancy name. You get a fancy is. name on our. Discord server. Uh, it's true. You get a special exclusive title. Yeah. So you can find us on Patreon at semiautomagi or semiautomagicinc.com. Yeah. Uh, our yeah. Discord is. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it. This is something from your your campaign. Oh, from Dyson Virtue. Yeah, it's the the Salah Sahim probably. Yeah, the Salah Sahim Senate. Um, you'll see us yep. there. Come interact with us. Uh, this is like one of the only podcasts that we're actively like. Hey, we want to just fuck around with our fans. So, yeah. like, if you're if you're someone who listens to Harmon Town and is just like, man, I really wish I could hang out with Dan Harmon or Mark Maron's podcast or anything like that, and just really are upset that that they're too famous for you, come on to our Discord. Uh, I'll t- yeah, you're you're too famous for us I'll, guys. I'll, but if you want to come spend some time with us, we'd love to. I'll have talk you. about mushrooms till like uh, I run out of material and, and stuff like that. That's true. Uh, anyways, well, all right, all our buddies. Uh, thank you for joining us here on the Gerald Field Report. 
Tune in next time when we learn about Stoop Kid and also the uh, terrible origins of Arnold's hat. <laughs> Until then, all our buddies, good night and good luck.